welcome to the Black Minds Matter podcast, where we discuss the root causes of educational inequality and the hope we have for a better path forward. Our essence and our being deserve life. Enjoy the show. Thanks for joining this episode of Black Minds Matter. My name is Denisha Merriweather, um, and today I am joined by the Kevin Chavis. Um, I'm, I've known Kevin since probably high school, middle school. It's been a while. And um, I well, I'll tell that funny story later about this time we were talking and you blew my mind. Uh, but Kevin Chavis is um, has been in the trenches for education reform for a while. And all of his work has been centered around giving parents and students more education options um, from attorney to DC politician, um, to what was next? DC politician. Bayo. Bayo. Defer. Yeah, you've you've done it all. And now Kevin is at K12 Inc., which is an online um education platform for students all across. It's probably it's worldwide, right? Yeah, yeah all over the world. Yeah. yeah. In the US. And so, Kevin, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, so let's let's jump right in. Well, let me tell you, first of all, uh, you are not as excited as I am to be with you, Tanisha. I remember you. I remember you very well when you were a young whippersnapper, as the old folks say. And you have blossomed into this beautiful flower who's a great voice for families and children in need. I'm so proud of you. Uh, I, I can't I can't state or express how happy I am to have you in the trenches fighting for parents and families. So, you know, I know you're going to interview me, but uh, I, I'm here to honor you. And I appreciate all you're doing for kids. Oh, thank you, Kevin. You're too generous. Well, too generous. You're the best. So tell me, just back it up for me a little bit and tell me about your your. Your, how did you get involved in the education space? You started out as an attorney, and how did that how did that come to be? Well, I, I can tell you, Denisha, and I've shared this story with many people, so I'll give you the abbreviated version, is that, you know, when I was a young lawyer and I decided to run for the D.C. City Council, uh, you know, like you, I was always a cause guy. I wanted to change the world. I wasn't quite sure how, but I thought that, Public service was a good way to do it. So I ended up uh, running for office, uh, winning, representing Ward 7, uh, great, great citizens of Ward 7 in Southeast and Northeast DC. And then, uh, you know, I used to, I was an athlete, played basketball, and I used to have these celebrity basketball games. I mean, I'd play people like Brian McKnight would put a team together or local DJs or, or local uh, radio personalities like Donnie Simpson or Big Tigger. I play all these folks. And then uh, I got a call from uh, our local prison and the inmates there, the warden said, the inmates have a team here, counseling, can you play? So I took my team into the prison, guys who were, you know, for major crimes and all that. And we played and I got to know some of the young men and I got to, I realized that some were there because of the disparate sentencing because of crack they, you know, be caught with possession and get life in prison or something. And um, and I said, wow, some of these guys, but for accident of birth. And I asked them about their school, all school didn't do anything for me. I mean, I realized 80% of the 85% of them couldn't read. They were dropouts. 
I asked the warden about it. I said, these young men have potential. What kind of education programs you have? And they said, oh, counsel, we wouldn't waste taxpayers' money. Most of them can't read. And uh, there's no sense in wasting money on trying to educate them. And, and I'm going to tell you, Denisha, that changed my life because I said, this just ain't right. So I, I started visiting schools in my ward. We had some great schools. We had some terrible schools. And I became a student of education, what works, what doesn't work. Uh, and at that time, we were considering charter school legislation in D.C. I fought for the and became chairman of the Education Committee, became an advocate for charter schools. But I believe let's lift all boats. So I gave D.C. public schools more money than they asked for, pushed our charter school movement. And after a few years, I could see that choice mattered, you know, and that really led me to being an advocate for um parents and having greater options. And then I guess shortly after that, as I helped to shepherd the charter movement in DC, I got to meet folks like, you know, Howard Fuller and, you know, Jeb Bush and, you know, and 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 I just got a, a, a broad-based perspective on what education could look and feel like when you empower families. And I guess the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. And I grew up in, for those folks listening, uh, you guys probably already heard my story. I grew up in low income area and most of the majority men, but women alike, the next step, if they didn't graduate from high school was prison. Um, and that school to prison pipeline is a really understatement because that's something that I've definitely seen in my life and in the lives of my community members. Um, and how K-12 education reform can directly impact uh, the school to prison pipeline and give these kids different options instead of um, vice. And so you mentioned your the piece of legislation that was groundbreaking in D.C., which included the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship, which was for private schools, the charter school um, creation and expansion program, um, and then extra funding for public schools. Why was it important to include all three sectors in that piece of legislation? Great question. Uh, me, uh, Mayor Tony Williams, and I ran for, against Tony Williams for mayor. We, you know, he, he uh, beat me in a, in, a, in a very hotly contested race. We were like cats and dogs. What brought us together was our commitment to uh, D.C. public schools and quality choice options for families. And when uh, Howard Fuller uh, brought me and, and uh, Tony Williams in to see Rod Page. So you had four African-American men sitting in the uh, Secretary of Education's office talking about how we could expand choice options for residents of the District of Columbia. And that's when we came up with uh, the, the agreement that we would support the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship. And, and the belief was that we would be lifting all boats, that for those families that like charter schools, the feds were entering into this creative relationship to provide more money for charter school infrastructure. For those families that wanted uh, to go to their neighborhood DC public school, it was more money for DC public schools. And over the last 15 years since the program's been in place, DC public schools has probably gotten almost twice as much as the other sectors. And then there was money set aside for scholarships for low income kids to go to schools like Sidwell Friends or Gonzaga, and if you know DC, Archbishop Carroll, you know, private schools 
for kids who come from families with a combined family income of DC of under $25,000 a year. Now think about it. They're making $25,000 a year. They live in DC, one of the most expensive places in the country, and they can go to school with you know, uh, some of the more uh, expensive and highly regarded private schools in the, in the, in the, uh, in, in the city. And lo and behold, after 15 years, 10,000 kids have gone through the program, 90% graduate, over 90% graduation rate, 90% college going rate, and it has lifted all boats. So to answer your question, my view was that the essence of choice at its core is giving families quality options. And what better way to do that than provide access to all the quality option sectors in the nation's capital? I'm proud of the program. Um, and yet we've had more work to do. As a, a former DC transient person, for everybody who comes in DC tarries for a little bit, then leaves. And you, but you, yeah, you've been DC forever and ever. Um, I, I love the city. I want to come back. Yeah. Maybe one of these. You're going to come back. In fact, you're going to come back to DC, but you're going to make a stop in Hollywood. See, I know. I saw how you roll among the celebs, you know, when we did the Champions for Choice, Layla Ali, she asked about you, how is that young lady, what's her name, Denise? Oh. I mean, they they love you, Layla Ali, you know, Regina King. I mean, they. I said, I ain't got to say a word. I'm just gonna put Denise up there. <laughs> you, know, you need to be on TV. That's, they, they saw that, that glow and that star in you. Kevin, that was super, fun and you i like that whole champions for choice movement that you led and brought to the world because you know we think about school choice and we just think oh it's these little policy wonk people or all these billionaires who are supporting it. it's like no this impacts the everyday person and that includes people who have name recognition that was super cool i really i really loved it and i so I flew from Costa, from the Dominican Republic to, to be there. And um, I think during my, my speech, I, I like had a, a fake Spanish accent because <laughs> my brain was like doing, doing the transition. Like, no, you're not there. You're not in Spanish. This is English time. That was so fun. You know, uh, Denisha, what was cool about that was uh, it started when I met Jalen Rose, and he um, he was going to start a charter school in Detroit, and someone put us together. Uh, and then, you know, uh, I got to meet people like Chris Broussard and Shaq, and uh, even people like Kathy Lee Gifford, who was interested in some education philanthropy, and Vivica Fox and Layla Lee. And of course, Lisa Leslie was one of the main leaders, the uh, uh, late director Penny Marshall. And I realized in talking to folks, I remember having a conversation with Ludacris, and he said, "I remember having a conversation with Ludacris." He said, "You need to understand, we come from these neighborhoods. Most of us were able to get out because we had some talent, but he said some of the schools work, but a lot of them don't work, and it's like no one cares. And for a lot of these celebrities out there, these African American and Latino celebrities." And even some white celebrities who come from challenged backgrounds, they feel like they maybe broke out, but there's some latent sort of 
guilt or feeling like, what can I do to help bring more? And that's why you see a lot of them. I mean, I remember talking to the folks in the LeBron James Foundation and, and talked to Magic about his work. And, and they, they are, they're yearning to help. And I think that understanding, but they don't want to be in a position where they're used and all that. But by the same token, understanding that the work they do, and particularly the Champions of Choice, would lead to individual children like you, Denisha, getting to go to a quality school tomorrow. It's not some piece of legislation or whatever. It's just like you can actually make a difference by impacting, you know, tens or hundreds or thousands of kids' lives. I mean, it's a powerful thing. So I, I'm glad that we did that. Uh, it's helped to sensitize a whole level of people that otherwise wouldn't be sensitive to the issue. And now we just got to make sure that we use what you're doing in the Voices for Choice and eventually bring all of that together to do a major, major national campaign around the power and promise of uh, parent choice. Yeah, I mean, even today you see where Sierra and um, Russell Wilson mm -hmm. are opening a charter school. And like you mentioned, LeBron James. LeBron, and I talked to LeBron. I knew, you know, I said to LeBron's people, I said, look, how are y'all going to do all that in a public school with no autonomy? You know, we, in charter school, you have autonomy, mm -hmm. you hire and fire. You know, LeBron's people said, well, we're going to use our name. We're going to do it the right way. Yeah. And I said, okay, uh, you know, facts. And that's what they did. And they're running a good school. Now, do you find, because I thought that ploy, not to um, tarry on that, but to kind of transition into politics, because I felt that situation with the LeBron James school and how it's kind of a charter school, but it's a traditional district school, very confusing. But I thought it, they did that because of the politics that yeah. surround this issue. Um, and so what do you, what you are DC dive, you been engaged in politics and have worked in this game for a long time especially in this time of 2020 uh what do you what are, what's your your hope or what do you think some challenges are also around school reform well you've heard me say this before denisha uh, i was one of the first ones to say it that uh there's no republican or democratic way to teach a kid how to read write count or compete and i do think that the politics of education has had a stranglehold on our ability to ensure that every child has equal access to a quality education. The politics of education, to me, is not grounded in what's best for children all the time. Oftentimes, it's grounded in adult interests. So uh, when I talk to, you know, I've had dinner with, you know, Black caucuses in South Carolina and Alabama, you know, Louisiana over the years, you know, I've met with Republican legislators you know, in Texas and Alaska, I've probably been to, you know, nearly 50 states talking about this issue. And when I engage them and talk to them about it, I say there's the, the one issue that I know of that we should clearly depoliticize is the education of our young. And so the barometer I use, which I suggest to, you know, other uh, politicians, or policymakers to use is to ask yourself a question when you're considering a piece of legislation or a proposal that impacts on education. Will this help a child or group of children learn? If the answer is yes, 
My the barometer I use is I support it. If it's no, I'm against it. So what does that mean? That means that I take the label and the political, you know, caucus's view off the table. So if it's a scholarship program that Dems don't like, but I know that 500 kids or 1,000 kids will go to a school that meets their needs and their parents choose, I will support it. If it's a magnet program in a public school that, you know, the school, school district superintendent wants to do it, only 20 kids benefit from it, but it's a program that otherwise those 20 kids wouldn't get that benefit, I'm going to support it. And I think this whole idea of us putting the party politic or waiting for you know the caucus or the party uh, or my political mentor to tell me how to think and and and, and uh, behave or what to support when it comes to education policy. I don't. I think we're doing our our, our uh, citizens a disservice. And I would like to think, Denise. The last thing I say on this, you know, it looks like we'll have a divided federal government and we'll continue to have a divided legislature. Right now, because of 2020, the most transformative, tumultuous year uh, in my lifetime, this in probably 1968, when I was very young. But, but in the midst of this crazy year, we are in an either or world, where either you're with me or you're against me, left, right, I'm a troll you. And I think this is an issue where we need to bring people together and figure out what's best for children and try as best we can to take the politics out of it. Now, uh, that, that means that we need to extend ourselves beyond ourselves and find ways to coalesce to help children. And, and, and I think this is a huge opportunity. I think we can get more done when it comes to education and parent choice uh, in a divided government world uh, than we could otherwise, because I think that this is a time when people should be engaged in in being in, in understanding they they now have to, to 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 be forced to build uh, coalitions. What better coalition than coalition for children? And that's what I think we have the opportunity to engage in uh, even during this time. Yeah, one thing. Um it's it's not a it's not appropriate to say oh one of the the great things that happened during this time but one of the silver lining things that happened in the midst of covid-19 is that people are more engaged with the education of their kids people are now looking to the schools and they're asking more questions and that's like a great starting Absolutely. point it's like just ask more questions and figure out why things are the way they are um, and that's such a great doorway into education reform and pushing the system. I was talking with a friend the other day and she was like, yeah, a lot of my suburban um, friends, suburban mom friends, was saying how they were so appalled how they weren't able to get all of these policies and things changed within the traditional system that they thought they would be able just because of their voice like some it, just to say that some some things need to be fixed and the eyes of a lot of people are open this maybe some things are are not working as awesomely as i i thought they were well and i think you're right and i think that one byproduct or uh impact that this year of 2020 will have we will have the biggest explosion of parent choice 
in our history. And you know why? Because more and more parents, as you said, Denisha, are going to be forced to be educated consumers about education. They're forced to really understand well, what's Johnny, Jane, Jose, Jamal really looking at, you know, getting in terms of their classroom work? What's how come this teacher is more responsive when I reach out and send them an email as opposed to this other teacher? And I think that that that's a good thing. And, you know, the work I'm doing now where we run, you know, my company, K-12, we run the largest online education platform in the country. And more and more families are coming to us as a result. And what we have found is that parents now, even over the last six months, are asking more questions. You know, do you have the email to what would be my kid's fifth grade teacher? You know, we weren't getting all a bunch of those kind of questions before. Most people were running from something because we had a lot of kids who were bullied, kids with medical challenges, physical challenges, kids who were behind two or three grades. But now we're getting a mix of all kinds of parents. And because of the experience of now they have to take ownership and be involved more in their kids' education, they're now more educated about what questions to ask the educators. And I think that's a beautiful thing. You wrote an article recently. Um, we've always applauded teachers for the amazing job they do, but this year they deserve a standing ovation. Um, and in there, you talk about preparing teachers, how during this time we, we found that teachers are not as prepared for the online environment, the online world, as in for other things that we thought they were. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. And look, First of all, I got to say, see, that's why I love you, Denise. You're so tight. You be reading my stuff and asking questions. I mean, you just, you just on your game all the time. Do your homework. And, you know, I just love the fact that you are up with the work that you're involved in. But you're right. We found that many school districts uh, who weren't prepared for this, you know, teachers would just do a PDF, send it to families and say, Okay, study this. We'll talk next week. And but those who were engaged, you know, they actually, you know, tried to make sure that they created uh, a meaningful uh, experience for children online. Uh, they figured out ways to group kids according to proficiency levels with Class Connect sessions that we use now. They uh, had meaningful back and forth in terms of working with parents and helping parents. And, and what happens, those great teachers out there are so used to adapting that they do what I just applauded you for doing, Denisha. They did their homework and they sought ways to better themselves. And I think that, you know, we need to give those teachers standing ovation, but we also, we also need to uh, help coach up those teachers who need to be coached up and frankly, those teachers that really don't want to or feel like, because some teachers said, well, I don't want to make the adjustment. This is a new way. Then that's fine. I mean, by putting kids' interests first, that should be the barometer. And I'm telling you, I am a big supporter of, of teachers in every way possible. And, and I think those teachers, the teachers that I think we need today in this new world, we need like when you went to the Dominican Republic, we need teachers who are cause-oriented, not job-focused. And when I say cause-oriented, then, you know, like those kids in the old Peace Corps day that, you know, 
straight out of college, go to some hut in Bangladesh or Nicaragua, feed hungry babies 20 hours a day, sleep three hours a night, wake up smiling and do the same thing over again. I think the teaching profession historically has been an avocation of people like that. We need more of that with this next generation of students. Yeah. And I, for all the folks listening, I would definitely say to tune into to that last piece with the teachers because Kevin is a part of K-12, which is, so you are one of the experts. I mean, I think you are probably the expert in this space because you work. Come on, come on, bring it home Expert, because you work and operate and this is your like, your world to operate in a fully online virtual space and making it effective and impactful for families and not just, oh, we're hiccup, we're, we're online now. You know, you've been doing this for a long time. And so, um, and also, so I wanna back up because before we were talking a little bit about politics. Yeah. Um, and so I want you to talk about DFIRST, so the Democrats yeah. for Education Reform. Um, and I want you to talk about BAYO because those are two different organizations that you helped to found, but they kind of merged together when you think about the missions. At yeah, the they did. It, you know, when I left office uh, 15 years ago, uh, I had gotten beaten up so bad for being a Democrat that supported charter schools, but there are a handful of us out there that were supportive. Dwight Evans in Philadelphia, uh, there was Cory Booker, uh, you know, there were uh, a number of us who were supportive of choice, but it was rough. And so I said, and, and the one thing they would say is, are oh, you a closet Republican or, you know, you're, you're anti-public uh, schools? And I said, look, you know, my record is clear. I supported D.C. public schools uh, immeasurably, but more than that, I'm supporting what's best for kids. And I said, we need an organization that's started by Democrats the board needs to be Democrats and the funders need to be Democrats. So, uh, you know, I got people like Andy Rotherham. Uh, I got, you know, uh, a, a number of folks like Caprice Young and, and a number of Democrats I knew. And we started DFER, uh, Democrats for Education Reform. We found some, some people to partner with us, some uh, uh, hedge fund guys and people with resources funded it. And the mission was that we would push our party toward being open to student-centered politics. And DFER now, Shavar Jeffries is, is running DFER, and uh, they have chapters all over the country, and they support political candidates, Democrats, who are open to education reform. And that was the thing. We wanted to make sure that we took away the label of being closet Republicans in a, in a highly charged political environment. And it's, it was a powerful thing we did, uh, Bayo was founded by Howard Fuller and Virginia Walton Ford. There were several folks who were involved in, in, in and when I met Howard, Bayo, you know, the Black Alliance for Education Options were black folks, mainly black African-American educators who supported parent choice in all forms, including scholarships and vouchers. And uh, it was a powerful group and uh, they, uh, work with not just elected officials, but black educators and particularly black charter school operators who often didn't have access to the large foundation dollars. Uh, and a lot of mom and pops 
who had neighboring schools, who had amazing teachers. You know, Bayo provided support for those, those uh, operators. And they also, most importantly, provide support and information for parents who were trying to exercise options in the chapters where Bayo was located. Um, and in many ways they did, those groups did come together when I was, I was on the Bayo board and former chairman of Bayo after Howard. And you know, I was chairman of DFER after family. And we worked together to empower families and make sure families knew who their positive voices of leadership were in their communities. I think that now we're in the next iteration. That's why I'm so proud of the Voices for Choice that you're a part of, because I've always believed, Denisha, that at the end of the day, it is the end user's voice that's most important. Now we have, I know in DC, we have 10,000 students who got scholarships to go to private schools based on the program that I helped to start. And now with the Florida Opportunity Scholarship, you got well over 100,000 students every year going through the program. And, 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 and these students like you have gone on to graduate from college, get advanced degrees, have great jobs. Your voices need to be heard in every hill, hamlet, state legislature in the country. And that's really what I think the next level of activism is in education reform. For those of us who you know, came from the legislative world or even the educated world, I mean, that was important at that time. But we need to empower more voices of the beneficiaries of these programs because your voices matter. You know, like black minds matter. Your minds matter. Your voices matter in making sure you positively infect this new crop of legislators on both sides of the aisle. And particularly the progressive ring of the Democratic Party. They need to know that you are out there so they understand what school choice really means. Yeah, there is, um, Kevin, you are, you're giving me uh, a lot of great spaces to talk about your works um, because you wrote a book called Voices for Choice, right? Um, and t highlighting student stories. And that was way before the Voices for Choice initiative got yeah. launched. Yeah. I featured um, 10 young people around the country, Voices of Determination. Okay. And um, it was all kids who came from uh, a great school experience, but they were determined to education and they all had challenges. And I interviewed every kid, uh, heart-wrenching stories. Uh, and uh, I, I'm so proud of those young people. Uh, it moves me to know that, that the power of, and resiliency of our children can overcome anything if they have someone who exhibits some belief in what they can do and what their potential is. And I, I, I just believe that, you know, the, the educated elite, you know, uh, the policymakers, I mean, all do great work, but at the end of the day, we need to empower voices like yours. And, and, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in what you are doing. Yeah, it's, um it is very remarkable when you think about this year, uh, the scholarship program that I had took advantage of uh, in Florida, the Step Up for Students Scholarship gave out one million, it's hit its one million uh, mark. So it gave out one million scholarships to date. And that's one million beneficiaries, how you said, who benefited from a choice option. Um, and you think about that million, they're going out and they're gonna be voting 
they're going to be sending their kids. They now have a new mindset on education um, because they've direct they've been impacted by um, education freedom. And so that multitude and it's way more than that across the country. Um, and so that's that, that that's a remarkable. Strategy. Teach one teach one. I mean, you, you build a foundation by putting in the first brick. And now just think about that program that John Kirtley and Jeb Bush and others are responsible for. I mean, it started with one brick and now a million bricks. And seeing people like you, there, there are so many flowers that flow from those seeds that have been planted. And, you know, I feel the same way. I mean, at K-12, we, we've educated a million kids. Uh, the DC Opportunity Scholarship, you know, 10,000. Uh, every year, folks like Igor Moskowitz educates, you know, 15, 20,000, 30,000. You think about, you know, the 5 million kids in charter schools. And and for many of those families, you know this, Tanisha, I've had parents whose kids have gone to choice option schools who said to me, I went back to get my GED because I saw how excited my kid was about school. I was never excited about school. I mean, this idea of, of having a, a broad based view of what's possible that's all that america should be about and so i'm i'm i think you know i celebrate what you're doing but there's more work to be done and you're at the center of it um so anyway i'm, I'm just excited to be with you now by the way speaking of books um i'm so glad that you like my other side of writing well, I'm about, that's what I was just about to, because, so just the background. So um, I am a conspiracy theorist. Anyone who knows me, like, it doesn't matter if it's like, oh, there was a dinosaur that lived on Mars once upon a time. I'm going to be like, really? I believe, like, I'm going to, I believe that. I could see it. So Kevin has this series, uh, Jackson Lowry. Um, and so I've read the series and <laughs> the first book is based on education, which had me like texting Kevin, like when I saw him, he never would answer my question. Um, if there was some truth behind the plan by Kevin Chavis. Well, let me so I'm hoping I could put you on the spot yeah. and ask you to answer my question. Well, in fairness for those people who are out there, now I've written several books. But the, um, like Tanisha, I love a good thriller. I love a good conspiracy. I grew up reading that stuff. And let me tell you, Tanisha, this, you probably won't know this, but you, you remember you know, like the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew? I was reading that stuff when I was a little kid, you know, so I always believed it. it, it I always enjoyed that stuff. And then I said, you know what? I want to I wanna write a, um, a thriller, a conspiracy. And I always liked these, these storylines where an average person sort of, you know, moseying along, enjoying their day, and all of a sudden they get swept into something and they're on the run. You know, that sort of was the theme. But the plan, which was the first one, it really, if you're a DC person, then you have heard about the plan. And the plan really was based on this idea that the gentrifiers were gonna kick the indigenous black folks in DC out. So I took sort of that concept of the plan and layered on this sort of white supremacy uh, context. And, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, when my wife reads my stuff, she said, wow, you know, this is what goes on in your head, you know? And I'm like, yeah. 
So tell them, give give everyone a summary of the book. So it's the the school lunches, school and lunches, and you know I don't want to go too far, but the, the plot is that they want to sort of help purge as many um, you know young black and brown babies as possible uh, as part of this purification effort. And you know there's there's a guy who is a, a, a lawyer who's had you know some challenges personally and. In a, in a rut, if you will, who gets swept up in this, and there's some, you know, politicians involved, and likely president, and and all this stuff, and he ends up, you know, uh, helping to save the day, uh, and you know, I I enjoyed the heck out of it, and there's been a couple series, I mean, a couple books since, uh, it, it was the trilogy, and I am um, I already have the outline for number four. I decided I'm going to do it again, and since my my favorite reader out there, Denisha, you know, when are you going to do the next one? Well, I'm going to do it. It is, it's become a little cult book. I got a little group of folks who, you know, reach out to me and, and, you know, give me suggestions about where to take Jackson and his team. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, but Kevin, you didn't tell me if there was a little bit of truth behind that book. I will say that uh, there are parts of truth to that. In fact, Every storyteller mixes in some truth to their great stories. And there is some truth to it, not the key conspiracy part of it, but some of the characters. In fact, I model, if you remember Ronnie, Jackson's best friend or his ex-wife's cousin, who's a military guy, he's modeled after a guy I know to a T. Everything about him, even in terms of this underground bunker he has. It's something that's that's exactly what he does. And in fact, when I told him I'd written a book model, he said, you didn't use my name, did you? You know, like, like, I don't want no one to know. I said, okay, I didn't use your name. Oh, Kevin, that's so awesome. We actually, we talked about, um, I talked about your, your book series um, on a different uh, podcast that we had when we were talking about contracts and who gets Who's paying for the toilet paper? Uh, so all the listeners go back and, and watch that episode. You can also listen to it on the podcast. Um, and so we we're talking about contracts, government contracts. And I was like, oh my God, you better pay attention. You better pay attention. You know, you better pay attention. Lock your doors at night. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That was, uh, I would definitely recommend it to anybody. It's just so awesome. Uh, and, and last question, why do black minds matter? Black minds matter so much. Um, you know, we're at a time where uh, human life, frankly, uh, human minds are devalued because people base their judgments on the value of individuals based on their political beliefs. And that fundamentally is flawed. Uh, the, the, the key thing we should be focused on is each individual matters, each life matters, and indeed each mind matters. And as we're in this period of time during 2020, when we have Black Lives Matter and people are talking about the fact that you want to be treated like everyone else, the best way to go to the next level of understanding and appreciation for the value of Black lives is to maximize on the potential of Black minds. And that's why this effort uh, that Denisha and the folks at AFC have put together is so, so very important. We want to create a cadre, a horde, a legion of educated African-American 
babies who become men and women who are productive and contributors to the discussions of, of the day, their day, now and in the future. Black minds matter because a black mind is a terrible thing to waste. It is something that is part of the centerpiece of American values and American prosperity. And, and Denisha, I tell you right now, I'm so proud of what you're doing. I'm so proud of what all the voices of choice are doing when they stand up and say that their education mattered to them because it allowed them to be productive members of society. So uh, I, I'm more honored to be with you than a lot of the programs I'm on. And I look forward to, to you know, working for you one day. I told you that, you know, make sure you hold a job for me because one day I want to just be following you and, and supporting your efforts. Thanks for listening to the Black Minds Matter podcast. You can watch the video of this episode on YouTube. Our goal is simple. We seek to ensure every child receives a quality education in the school of their parents' choosing.